Hannah Brown. Chris McLeish, here we are, episode number 15 already. Woo-hoo! I know. It's as if we've been doing this for a while. 15 weeks. That's, that's because we have. Ah, yeah. <laughs> it's been a while. You've solved the mystery. Exactly. One left unsolved, one less unsolved mystery in Scotland. What a relief. Thank you. Do you know what is a mystery, though? What's that? And I've just noticed, looking at myself in the camera, that I've inadvertently managed to dress myself like a pumpkin today. Because mm. I've got an orange jumper and a green hairband on. Well, sometimes it's good to celebrate root vegetables. Isn't it? I feel like the, they don't get enough love in the world. I've also just said root vegetable. A pumpkin is not a root vegetable. <laughs> a what pumpkin. Is it then? I mean, it's a ground dwelling grower, a vine vegetable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's let's yeah. go with that. Let's go with yeah. that. Yeah. That's yeah. nice. But I mean, let's not forget we should celebrate root vegetables too. We should. We should. Maybe, they are perhaps important. you're a carrot. I could be a carrot as well. Mm. That's very true. That is like the carrot. Yeah. I just went pumpkin because that's more rotund. And I feel like that <laughs> reflects my present shape. Thank you. Thank you, lockdown, for that one. But that's I mean, okay. I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, <laughs> but I you. can also relate to the struggle bus. Exactly. We covered this last week. It is an ongoing battle that we presently live with yep uh, but we'll okay. get through it that's okay we'll absolutely survive we will uh, survive matt and i are continuing to do yoga which is excellent excellent after I dinner mm-hmm. and we are beginning to feel some benefits which is nice lovely and uh, yeah hopefully i think now that i've gone back into yoga i'll probably try and keep it going as a long-term affair because i do love it excellent yeah but that's because um, you, you're all bendy and double jointed. This is true. I do have, <laughs> I have a natural flexibility. You do. You do have a sort of biological advantage in that term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I definitely have lost some of my flexibility, but I'm getting better. Definitely Good. getting better. Hopefully the lockdown body will return well, actually, I'd quite like to return to what I was maybe about four years ago, never mind pre-lockdown. <laughs> so I'm working on it. That's true. But also, I mean, before lockdown, as in like the first one last year, you were also doing your personal training and stuff like that. Yeah, which I was never particularly good at. I always really enjoyed it. But I just find going to the gym to do actual lifting of heavy things mm-hmm. very intimidating. I find lads very scary and i feel like there's a lot of lads in the gym i agree with that yes doing i like cardio and i like body weight stuff so actually lifting something that is not a part of my body Mm -hmm. just feels so incorrect my little weak (laughs) wrists my wrists are not built for lifting things when you've got twiggly arms like me it's really hard so i find going to the gym a bit of a struggle bus so (sighs) the personal training was great I just don't think I fully let myself go into the the gym workout stylings no, that that's a personal fair. trainer would expect. Although I will say, because there was at a time that, or your personal trainer freelanced at the gym I go to, mm-hmm. and because we live on the opposite sides of the city, one of my lasting memories is the day 
that I was on the cross trainer and was in the zone and looked around and was like, that looks an awful lot like Chris McLeish, but that can't be Chris McLeish because he lives on the opposite side of Glasgow. And then you walked past <laughs> me and I was like, that is Chris McLeish. <laughs> What's he doing in my gym? <laughs> it's so weird. Well, I will give a little shout out to Frankie, my personal trainer and my friend who yeah. was very good with me, very patient with the fact that I was quite useless. But um, <laughs> he was very good with me. And yeah, so I would come to his gym because he worked there as yeah. a personal trainer as well as in his little cabin. Exactly. Big, big fan of Frankie. Highly recommend. It's very strange when you see people out of context and places you're not used to seeing them. For example, Matt yeah. and I went to Tesco last night at about 10 o'clock, half 10. And because at we're night. going late. Yeah, because we're going late at night because it's much, much quieter. Clever. The frequency at which we go to Tesco might be slightly more, but it uh-huh. feels okay because we're going when there's hardly anybody there. I'd much rather go for small trips for just kind of bare essentials when we need mm-hmm. them, when there's no one there, as opposed to going for a massive shop when the place is absolutely chock a full. Um, uh, yeah, fair. So I saw someone that I went to high school with. Hmm. So she was the year below me. Okay. Uh, I went out with her friend, one of her best friends at the time. And so we became pals. We were in the same classics class. And uh, yeah, I was, a, I was a big fan. And we've, we've done shows together. We've known each other for a very long time. I used to work with her mum in Oxfam. And it was lovely. But then I was overcome with this A, confusion, because B, seeing her out of context. B, she now has pink hair. So I was a bit, she, I was a bit kind of like, is it, is it her? That's- that's a look. It was indeed strong, her. Strong decision. Yeah, it's very nice. It's kind of like a pastel pink. Very nice. Oh, lovely. Mm-hmm. And um, so normally, pro- pre-COVID, I would probably yeah. stop and say hello. But there was something took over me where I just all of a sudden was really aware of the, co- of the, the pandemic. And I was like, I'm wearing a mask. I've got joggers with a hole at the neon. They're covered in acrylic paint. I look a mess. And I've, and I've got... Um, I just... I really didn't know what to do with the situation. Mm-hmm. So I didn't say hello. I wish I had. I felt like hide? I was avoiding her. Wasn't hiding actively. And I wasn't convinced <laughs> initially that it was her anyway. It wasn't until we okay. were at the tills that I thought, nope, nope, that's definitely her. Yep. Um, so I have to apologise. I doubt that she listens to this podcast. But <laughs> if she does, you know who you are. And I'm very, very sorry to have ignored you. It wasn't intentional. <laughs> I just became very stressed about the fact I was seeing someone I wasn't expecting to see. <laughs> That's no, oh, I think we've all been there. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all done the actively trying to blend in with your surroundings so that said person does not does not see you. But Well, exactly. I I mean, I just was really I wasn't looking my best. It's, it's, all, that, it's always when you're not looking your best or it's always when you're busy. See the amount of times that I've been working on the bar at the theatres, right? And it's been busy. And I remember one day a girl came up to me and was like, and said to me, hello. And I was like, hi. And then she was like, hi. I was, and literally my brain was just going, crap, 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 crap. She knows who I am. She knows who I am. I don't know who she is. <laughs> I don't know who she is. And I was literally standing there and I was going, okay, either you have to say that you don't remember who she is or just play along like you've never seen her before and I don't know which is worse but eventually oh, it's no. always the last minute and eventually I was like I remember when I, know, I was like hi yes I do know who you 
But it's just that because also as well, I think we come into contact we like if you're working on a show or whatever, you come into contact with so many people that eventually your brain just kind of like wipes their faces f- from your memory. So when mm-hmm. you do see them out of context, you're like, oh my god, I know that person, but I can't think how. It's the worst. It's all, and it's always when you're busy that somebody tries to have a conversation, and you're like, love to chat, not the right moment. <laughs> I have had that many times where somebody has seen me in a show. Oh really? And they start to speak to me as if they know who I am because oh. they do because they've seen me in a show. Yeah. But I, th- they forget that I don't know who yeah. they are. And I've had people make really strange comments to me that are kind of quotes from a show that I was in or a reference to a show. And it always, I really enjoy it. I think it's really sweet. That but I, really sweet. Some, there have been a few times where I'm like, I don't get what you're saying to me. What is this? Yeah. I enjoy those little strange interactions, though. It kind of, it makes my day a little bit when somebody's just a little bit odd or there's a little strange something it just makes the day more interesting i do oh, appreciate it no them. definitely and also it definitely stops your day becoming monotonous if you're that, dealt, which is very easily done which is very easily done and it, if you're dealt a stupid question or two it does mm-hmm. give you something to smile about and yeah yeah no it, <laughs> uh, yeah exactly it's not that we hate it it's just that sometimes particularly if you're stressed out or tired you're going just use your common sense <laughs> yeah it's not hard now before we started recording yes i told you that there was a story i wanted to tell you i well i presumed it was the tesco one so the fact that i've not heard no, it yet is exciting this is new <gasps> oh so well it's not exciting it's just odd so last okay. night i was awoken by matt kind of shaking my arm a little bit and i was like What's occurring? I registered that I think I'd made some noise. So I thought, okay. oh, sorry, did I make a noise? And he was like, yeah. And I, so what had happened was, <laughs> I was having a dream that there were ghosts in the flat. Ghost children. I've already spoken about how I wish this place was haunted with ghost children. And so I was having dreams about ghost children. And I walked into my hall and there was a ghost child wearing Victorian clothes and a little flat cap running towards me. And so I started to play with him. So then in the dream, I was playing with this little ghost boy in my hallway and I started to laugh, but I woke Matt up by going <laughs> like that. And so I was just making the strangest like noise and woke Matt up and he was terrified. He thought something was wrong. So I, um, yeah, I have finally, I finally realized my dream of having ghost children in the flat. It's now a reality to me. Um, <laughs> but I terrified poor Matt. It was very oh, funny. Oh, wow. Right. I'm sorry. Your house is haunted. For sure. It has I'm to be. I'm telling you. It is. Yeah. I just, it's an old enough building that ghosts have found their way to just chill here. Exactly. And maybe it was a building that those Victorian children felt safe in or liked going to, which is why they've just decided to go back. Well, that's and... why he was playing. That's why he was having fun. Yeah. Oh, It wasn't poor... a nasty ghost, but poor, <laughs> poor Matt, Matt was terrified because I, I sounded possessed. <laughs> so, oh my God, that's so funny. I mean, I know I've been guilty of talking and laughing in my sleep before. 
but Matt, I don't think, has really experienced it much. Yeah. <laughs> so that's good. I can imagine that being quite scary, though. I'm, I'm with him on that one. <laughs> but the thing is, I then, after I woke up, I did register what had happened. So I said, oh, sorry, I was laughing at a ghost. <laughs> and so he was like, that doesn't help. That really doesn't help. <laughs> I was like, I've always, it was just, it was a ghost and I was laughing. Anyway, so that's the story I wanted to tell you. Kind of appropriate is, for the pod. Uh, very much so. That's a brilliant story. And <laughs> maybe based in truth. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe, that's maybe just there's... maybe how a ghost communicates with me. Maybe. That would make sense. Yeah. But, wow. Oh, God. Yeah. Good times. Good times. You know what time it is? I do know what time it is. Shall I pull a wee question? Let's do it. Let's do it. Chris McLeish, mm-hmm. have you ever liked a movie remake better than the original? Ooh. It's a very good question. Thank you for that question, human. Whoever sent it in. I'm sorry. I didn't write that down. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Let me have a thinky think. Well, I've got one straight off the back if you want okay, to. Okay, tell me. The film that comes to mind is a sort of readaptation of the same source material, but okay. a lot of people kind of think that the remake is a remake of the original film, but anyway. But I think that the Tim Burton version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is superior to the Gene Wilder version. Oh, okay. I feel that might be a controversial opinion. I think it I... might be a controversial opinion for some. But yeah. I say this purely because that the the Gene Wilder version has like its own quirks and a lot of like good parts in it. And mm-hmm. Gene Wilder as Wonka is both sort of like nice, but also he's slightly scary which is what it should be. Yeah. But I feel like that that version is too frothy and too mm-hmm. nicey-nicey. And if anybody has read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or any of Roald Dahl's books, there's a quite a obvious dark streak to those books. And yeah. there's a very sort of like almost verging into kind of horror aspects obviously not because they're kids books but just that they're really dark and they're quite twisted and I feel like the Tim Burton version captures that better than the Gene Wilder version because it's quite because it's quite cold and it is quite creepy and it's dark because I suppose that's his niche (laughs) yeah (laughs) as a director but I just feel like it captured the source material better in that it's really cold and it's bleak and it's slightly unhinged. And I feel just that that film does it better than the... Okay. Also, another controversial opinion, I hate the song Pure Imagination with a passion. I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, okay. I can, I can understand. Thank you. It's, I, there's no judgment I don't dislike it as a song I have two things about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory that come to mind Go for it uh, So in the Gene Wilder version There's a scene with the Candyman Yes The Candyman can uh, yeah. so Remember the scene If you watch that scene very closely 
there's a point where he lifts the the counter flap and he smacks a little girl in the chin <laughs> with the with the counter flap and that scene is used in the film so if you go and watch that very funny the little child gets smacked in the chin and the other thing which i i read just yesterday was uh-huh. that gene wilder when he became unwell what was it that he had did he have parkinson's or alzheimer's or i think it was something of that it can't recall exactly what it was that he had but he didn't because he didn't go public with what he was suffering from for a very long time Mm -hmm. and he said it's because he didn't want to ruin the illusion or they didn't he didn't want children to know that willy wonka was unwell and he said something really sweet like he dreaded the thought of one less smile in the world how cute is that really sweet Anyway, I read that just yesterday. His wife said that after he died, that that's what he said, Um, which is really sad. I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking. I think he is one of the greatest actors of all time and unparalleled in terms of like comedy and all, like all the, Young Frankenstein is one of my all time favorite films, but yeah. If we're, if we're just looking at source material, I personally just don't think that Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is the, reflects the source material particularly well, I think. Okay. It's just, I think, I think, like, Roald Dahl's books are, they are very dark and they're very twisted for, like, young, for young readers. Like, they are, they are well to use they are they are quite gothic in mm-hmm. certain respects so i just feel like the the tim burton version captured the unhinged nature of the tone of that that book it would be interesting if somebody did a series of actual full-blown horror v- versions of roald Dahl stories i would love that i would watch that <laughs> i would watch that in a flash i would 100% watch that. It's just, one, it's just one of those things. I think a lot of people think his books, because a lot of the adaptations of his books have been quite fluffy and quite nice and still have a, still maintain a dark streak, but maybe not as like at the forefront. I think, but I think when people go back to the source material, you actually go, hmm, that is pretty, pretty dark, what he's, what he's writing about. And yeah. Particularly in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, all the things that happen to the bad children mm-hmm. is really it's it's quite it's quite scary if you're a if you're an eight year old and reading those books like the witches that is terrifying yeah it's properly terrifying I loved that film me too. oh it's so good well, I haven't book. seen the I haven't seen the remake neither kind have refused, I I've... kind of refused to watch it. Me too. While you have brought up Gene Wilder, I had a different film that I thought maybe the remake was better. But actually, you mentioning Gene Wilder has made me think of the producers. Oh. Because I have seen the Mel Brooks producers. Mm-hmm. Because when I bought the DVD of the musical, it came in a, in a two-pack. So I had both. Oh. And um, I don't even think I got the whole way through the film because I just didn't enjoy it as much as the remake. Mm -hmm. But then I've maybe done that in the wrong order. I've maybe, I watched the remake first. Yeah. And perhaps if I saw it the other way around, I'd feel differently. But uh, I think 
the remake of The Producers is excellent. The fact that Will Farrell... Yeah, well done. I always get his name confused with Colin Farrell. <laughs> Will Farrell, he is almost bearable in that film. And that's saying something yep. because I yeah. really, truly don't enjoy Will Ferrell at all. Yeah. But I think Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick are both excellent. Uma Thurman, fantastic. That it's a really, I think it's a really good film. And based on what I did see of the original, mm-hmm. I much preferred the remake. I've never seen the original producers. And I also have never seen the remake all the way through. I've seen bits of it, but it's I've never actually sat down to to watch the the full thing um one of the few so speaking of it will ferrell though one of the few musical numbers from that film i have seen all the way through is when they're doing the the dance yeah that uh, and that was quite funny so, it's quite um, funny <laughs> um, i did enjoy it the film i was going to say was 13 ghosts the remake has Funnily enough, it has Miss Honey from the Matilda movie in it. And it has the guy who plays Shaggy in the live action Mm -hmm. Scoobies, uh, whose name has completely escaped. Matthew. Nope, he's gone. Uh, So, yeah, it's it's very good. And I did try to watch the original and it was a black and white old fashioned movie with very basic. Yeah kind of it was more about the atmosphere than anything else from what i can remember mm-hmm. much preferred the remake uh, and it's quite it's it's interesting it's a it's a fun little horror number so i said to you last week that i would do what i was meant to do last week this week and then i once again decided to do a different story <laughs> i'm seeing a but pattern but there are here. There is a pattern and there's actually a very strange coincidence in this story. So the story itself ended up turning into even more of a story than I intended. But let's just start at the beginning. So I am going to, I can't think of the tune for that song, but uh, it's a classic. So I am going to talk to you briefly about the film Chucky, also known as Child's Play in America. Are we talking uh, the original or the remake? <laughs> the original. Okay. So I'm going to talk about it very, very briefly, and then the story will just take a couple of turns. So let's fire in. Okay. The Child's Play Chucky franchise is one of the best-known long-running franchises in horror, with seven installments of the original franchise, a nineteen nope, a 2019 remake, and an upcoming TV series that promises to continue the original storyline, all helping to ingrain the red-haired killer doll Chucky into the public consciousness. Chucky's creator, Don Mancini, has revealed that his inspiration for the idea of a killer doll movie included 80s consumerist fads such as the Cabbage Patch dolls, which are adorable, and the My Buddy doll, which I didn't Google, so couldn't tell you if it's adorable or not. (laughs) As well as the notorious Zuni doll segment from the 1975 movie Trilogy of Terror and the Living Doll episode of The Twilight Zone. I will just throw in here as well that I, as a child, was terrified of China dolls. And it's because of an episode, I believe it was season five, 
of the X-Files called Chinga. And this was an episode about China dolls that came to life and killed people. And I saw it Christmas Eve when I was about six years old. And it traumatized me to the core. And I then had a proper, proper fear of China dolls for a very long time. Oh, I feel like I have the X-Files to blame for a lot of my adult phobias. (laughs) I would think so. So Chucky made his first appearance in the 1988 film Child's Play. Or what we call Chucky. In the film, serial killer Charles Lee Ray uses a voodoo doll ritual inside a toy store to transfer his soul into a good guy's doll in an effort to escape from Detective Mike Norris. Now living in the form of the animated doll, Chucky is given to young Andy and begins to terrorise the family. And as I've said, went on to have five sequels, including Bride of Chucky, voiced by Jennifer Tilly, which is your gal, the crystal ball from the Haunted Mansion. Yes. Yes. The I best love Jennifer Tilly. <laughs> she <laughs> Just she hasn't aged at all, by the way. She looks amazing. She looks incredible. Um, not that aging is a problem. Aging is absolutely fine. No, just that she's but doing she it looks, incredibly gracefully. Yeah, she looks incredible. Uh, while haunted dolls are pretty notorious, the most famous doll of them all might be the one simply known as Robert the Doll. So this is the doll that partly inspired Chucky. I did not okay. know that anything did inspire Chucky. Mm-hmm. I've also never seen this film, I'm ashamed to admit. Don't you worry about it. It's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> it's actually not a bad film. I quite like it. Robert the Doll was the property of a different human Robert called Robert Eugene Otto. He gave the doll his own name, though he himself actually went by Gene. So I will refer to him as Gene in the story and I'll refer to the doll as Robert. Gene was the youngest of three sons of an affluent Key West family. The official story is that Robert was a gift to Gene from his grandfather for his fourth birthday in 1904. His grandfather uh, bought the doll when he was on a trip to Germany. Uh, also, how handy is it being born in 1900? Because you could just be like, oh yeah, so it's 1934, I'm 34 this year. How handy would that be? No maths involved. It's, it's great. My brother was born in the year 2000, so it's super handy. <laughs> well, that's that, fair enough. Well, I was born in 1991, which is a palindromic year, which is very exciting. Oh, my um, name is also a palindrome. So it is fun. (laughs) What a fun life. Some say that the doll was a gift to Jean from a young... I don't know how to pronounce this. So that somebody from the Bahamas. It's been written as Bahamian. Does that sound like it's probably the pronunciation? It it must be, because you're not going to say Bahama differently, surely. Exactly. Because I was thinking Bahamian, but then it's not the Bahamas. So I'm going with Bahamian. Um, Going on a trip to the Bahamas. The Bahamas, Um, So, some say that the doll was a gift to Jean from a young Bahamian girl, either as a gift or some kind of retaliation for some wrong perpetrated by the Otto family. Others say that the doll was a gift from from the family's Bahamian maid. The added element of the Bahamas seems to exist to bring in the idea of voodoo, and apparently small voodoo dolls were also amongst Jean's toy collection that he would hold on his lap and throw across the room when he was angry and having a tantrum. Uh, don't, 
don't, I don't recommend messing about with voodoo dolls. No, no, no. I can't see that ending well. No, never ever. Uh, although I, I'm pretty sure I have Ouija boarded before. It's not the same thing, but fun. <laughs> I'm not against a voodoo doll, actually. I would probably have a wee bit of fun with a voodoo doll. I think voodoo dolls sometimes are used for good as opposed to evil. They can be used as kind of a, a little, almost like a life mascot. Voodoo it, well, can be yeah, used for yeah. good. It was the same way that people who practice sort of like Wiccan and pagan rituals still, you get good, you get good ones. You also yeah. get bad ones. Everything True. has light and dark. Yes, just stick to the light. That's what we're saying. Please, we we, we yeah. recommend it, friends. <laughs> <laughs> so before we fully dive in to the to the story of Robert's reputation for being haunted, I will describe him and just see how that fits and how that sits with you. Excellent. He's got beady black eyes and a weird little monkey kind of face, which is covered in the scars of being over 100 years old. He wears a little sailor suit and holds a doll of his own, which could be a dog, could be a bear, could be a lion, some kind of animal. Uh, and he has, which has bug eyes and a wide open mouth. Oh, lovely. It turns out that Robert is not just odd in appearance, but he's also entirely unique. Robert was not mass produced and wasn't to be sold to children everywhere. Instead, he was a one-off item meant to be part of a window display of clowns and jesters for the Stife Company, which I have a rabbit from Stife, which is in the hall. Yeah. It's a little yeah, rabbit. Very- they're very expensive now. They're very expensive. They're very expensive now. They were a gift for my pricey. birthday. Oh. Yeah, which is very lovely. nice. It's a rabbit, obviously. <laughs> Built around the turn of the 20th century, Robert is 40 inches tall, which is about the size of a real life human child, and stuffed with wood wool, so kind of wood shavings. Lovely. Although Robert would have originally have been dressed and painted up like a jester, the sailor suit he has worn for over 100 years is most likely to have been jeans at some point, uh, and it was given to the doll as a hand-me-down. Jean and Robert the doll were inseparable for much of Jean's life. Jean would carry Robert everywhere with him, and at night Jean's mother could hear him holding conversations with the doll. The doll spoke in a different voice from Jean. Of course, she assumed that Jean was merely talking to himself and producing both voices, but she would later come to question her assumption about this. The doll had his own chair at the dinner table and slept every night in Jean's bed. Even weirder, Jean talked about Robert exclusively as if he were a living entity. Later, Jean built Robert his own room in the attic, complete with furniture and other smaller toys meant for Robert, including the little dog that he is seen still with to this day. One thing that Jean was very guilty of was blaming his own bad behaviour on Robert. So Jean was known for throwing regular tantrums, which he would say were Robert's fault. Spills or overturned chairs would get blamed on the doll as well. And at every turn, whenever chaos and disorder followed, the young Jean throughout the auto home, Robert did it, would be the refrain. Make sense? That makes sense. <laughs> That's, I'm so bad for saying a sentence and then being like, was any of that English? That was English. We'll go that with was it. English. Don't panic yourself. <laughs> 
Many seem to give more consideration to the idea that Jean imbued the doll with all sorts of potent emotional energy by constantly blaming the doll for everything negative in his life. Jean eventually went on to study fine arts in Chicago, New York and Paris, ultimately becoming a notable and unsurprisingly incredibly eccentric painter and author. He met his wife Anne, who was a concert pianist, in Paris and the two lived in New York together for a while before moving back to his old family home, which he inherited. This is where Robert the Doll resided all these years. Oh, was Robert annoyed? Robert would, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, if I got left at home for <laughs> however many years someone went off to study, I would be mad. He went off to Chicago, New York and Paris and Robert didn't get an invite. Incredibly rude. Although, can yeah, you imagine like a 20 year old art student walking around with a doll dressed as a sailor? But if you're an art student, you can pass it off as being like quirky. True, true. Just be like, he's a handbag, deal with it. Anywho... <laughs> <laughs> they decided to rename the house, which was a manor, to mm-hmm. the artist house. The house still stands to this day and is a hotel, which tells you the kind of size that we're talking. This was big. a big house, big enough to now be a hotel. Big house. So the Ottos lived a lavish, expensive life. Yes. Perhaps surprising no one, Anne Otto, which his wife, did not care for the weird husband's even weirder friend, Robert. So Robert found himself confined to the turret room when the couple moved into Jean's family home. As it turns out, that wasn't enough to stop his antics. Whatever the case may be, be it laden with a voodoo curse, filled with negative energy, or perhaps sharing a piece of his human friend's soul, Robert's activity continued long after leaving the artist house. The adult Jean Otto would often go up to the turret room to work during the day as he found the light there preferable for painting. Robert would be his constant companion propped up against the window. As the stories go, school children walking past the artist house would see Robert the doll moving from one window to another or even scowling at them through the glass. Jean passed away in 1974 and Anne made sure from then on that Robert was locked in a cedar chest in the attic. Myrtle Reuter became the house owner in 1970s after Anne's death, two years after Jean, and she then became Robert's new owner. Strange that the doll would also kind of part of the package deal. You get yeah. a kitchen, you get an ensuite, and you get a doll that looks like a, a monkey dressed in a sailor suit. What a dream. Visitors to the house. a big selling point for the house. I think so. <laughs> Um, although knowing me, I would be like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Haunted doll, I'm in. <laughs> Visitors to the house claimed that they would hear unexplained footsteps skittering across the attic room above them, as well as disconcerting giggling. Apparently, a plumber working in the house's attic once heard giggling and turned to discover that the doll had moved across the room entirely on his own. Hmm. Additionally, Robert was said to change facial expressions when he could overhear conversations, especially if they were about him or Jean. One visitor commented that Jean must have been an old fool, only to see Robert's face twist into an angry scowl. Reuter continued to bear the burden of being Robert's companion even after moving out of the artist house, only to discover that Robert would run room to room in her new house as well. 
Side note, visitors to what is now the hotel have mm-hmm. reported sighting an unsettling apparition strolling across the turret room staircase. But it isn't a spooky doll. It is a beautiful woman wearing a wedding dress and it is believed that it's the ghost of Anne patrolling oh. the house. Robert the doll now lives somewhere else. So after 20 years as Robert's caretaker, Myrtle Rooter had apparently had enough of the doll's troublemaking antics and finally donated him to the Fort East Martello Museum in Key West in 1994, where he has now spent most of his time ever since. The choice of home was a fitting one as Jean had designed the museum's gallery. Robert was not initially put on display in the museum, but visitors soon showed great curiosity about the doll when they learned he was there. So Robert the doll was put in a glass case, sitting in a chair and holding his little toy. According to the Robert the Doll homepage, there's a website dedicated to it, staff started noticing a shift of energies at the museum once Robert arrived. After Robert had been put out for display, visitors and museum employees noticed that cameras and electronic equipment would malfunction in the doll's presence, with photos coming out smeared or completely out of focus. Mishaps at the museum are often attributed to the doll, with the common refrain being the same as the one used in Otto's house. Robert did it. Ho ho! Little troublemaker. In addition to any mischief Robert might make by by running around the museum or gumming up the works and electronic devices, the little doll is most famous for placing curses on visitors who disrespect him. Specifically, visitors who take his photo without permission. Oh, I mean, I mean, fair. Nobody yeah, likes I, having that done. Get permission, please. Exactly. Well, it's get the consent forms. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm on Robert's side for this one. Yeah, to fair be enough. <laughs> Past visitors to the museum have attributed any number of misfortunes to encounter with Robert to encounters with Robert, including car accidents, broken bones, job losses, and divorce. According to the curator of the museum, Robert receives one to three letters every single. Oh, I've got the hiccups. He receives one to three letters a day, while some are fan letters. The majority of them are apologies from visitors who had disrespected Robert during their visit and subsequently suffered some catastrophe in their life. Wow. Yeah. That's some power that a doll has. Yeah. The Robert homepage also contains scans of a few of these letters sent to Robert, including one from a child who wants wants to be pen pals for some reason. And somewhat disconcertingly asks if he has a girlfriend. So yeah, some people want to be Robert's uh, beau. What? <laughs> yep. Oh, I Enough. have questions for those people. I have, me too, me too. It's Ooh. almost like, I, do you know the dolls that are really, really human-like and people yeah. have, have them and treat them like actual babies? That makes me a little uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, I mean, each, each, to, each to their own, but yeah, Absolutely. the lifelike baby thing, I do... I, I just I gives me the heaps. Yeah, I don't. I don't like things that are hyper realistic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I think maybe mm-hmm. that's the thing. I just find yep. it creepy. Agreed. Agreed. Um, another of these letters is a desperate letter of apology for taking Robert's picture without permission from someone who has sub- subsequently received a speeding ticket and continuous car troubles. The best, though, is a kid who writes to cheer on Robert for destroying those who disrespect him. 
I thoroughly enjoy that. Although we shouldn't encourage, we shouldn't encourage bad behavior or aggressive aggressive behavior. Agreed. None of that. But I mean, fair play. Wow. The kid's got a a role model in life. Yeah, quite a fan letter. Yeah. Oh wow. Many of the numerous letters of apology to Robert are pinned up on the walls around his display as a warning to visitors. Other pieces of Robert's fan mail ask Robert for advice or just to curse their enemies with eldritch doll power. Why Lovely. not? Quite the array. Oh. People don't just send letters, though. They also send uh, marriage proposals, hex requests, <laughs> physical off. There, uh, there are physical offerings as well, such as uh, sweets. There's a box full of peppermints that were sent to Robert with no return address. Were sent. They were sent to the museum. People give him money, uh, and sometimes, or well, on some occasions, marijuana cigarettes so wow he's got quite the varied lifestyle does does robert so he does (laughs) so this idea of a cursed doll had some influence on the story of chucky okay yes i can see that now not only has chucky been inspired but he is also inspired Hmm. and this was a story i wasn't intending on talking about i wanted to just cover robert the doll okay but i decided in the end a, there's a coincidence, which is wild. Well, it's not wild, but it's a coincidence. And also, I just thought it would be nice to bring this up, but not necessarily go into a lot of detail. Fair because enough. the details are... There's so much to this story, and it's worth reading, but it is tragic. Oh. So, I couldn't not talk about the murder of James Bulger. Okay. If you've heard of James Bulger. Yes, I have indeed. So James Bulger was born on the 16th of March 1990 in Kirkby, England. His parents, Ralph and Denise, have pre- had previously lost a daughter who was a stillborn. However, James was the picture of health and their little bundle of joy. He had big blue eyes and light brown hair with a very happy-go-lucky kind of outlook on life. He was always smiling and made his parents laugh. Age 25, Denise doted on him and was very, very protective. But a routine trip to the shops just before his third birthday ripped the little family apart. And it's very sad. It's incredibly sad. This is a horrendous, this is possibly one of the most heinous cases in like recent UK totally. history. It's... And there, as I say, there is oh. so much to it, even recent developments and recent. Yeah. It's horrific. So. Denise was out with James at the Bootle Strand Shopping Centre. It's late afternoon when Denise makes her visit to the A.R. Tim's butcher shop. She placed her order and momentarily was distracted. Sadly, it doesn't take long for him to disappear. She rushed outside to search frantically, but Denise Bulger's worst nightmare was coming true. The police were called after security staff failed to locate him. She describes him again as wearing a blue anorak with a hood, a mustard-coloured lining, silver-coloured tracksuit bottoms and white trainers. At 4pm, a young police constable who's carried out a thorough search of the shopping centre is comforting a distraught Denise. By 5.30pm, the shopping centre closes for the day and the police launch a major search for a missing child in Bootle, Bootle, Liverpool. Smashed it. What starts off as a simple hunt for a missing child turns into something much more sinister, when by Friday night he's still not found. 
The police and security staff worked through the night at the Strand Shopping Centre sifting through CCTV footage. Their efforts are rewarded when they pinpoint James leaving the butcher's shop earlier that day. Tracking his movements, the police search for further clues. They confirm that moments after James is seen exiting the butchers, a panic-stricken Denise also leaves the shop and is seen on the ground floor hunting for her son. Unbeknown to her, James is now on the top floor and appears to be following two boys. The footage reveals the haunting grainy image of the last recorded moments of James Bulger. Two boys can be seen with James, one holding James's hand. They are all heading towards the exit and the direction of Leeds Liverpool Canal. These boys are later identified as 10-year-olds Robert Thompson and John Venables. The boys joked about pushing Bulger into the canal. An eyewitness uh, during the trial said that when he saw Bulger at the canal, he was crying his eyes out. During a 2.5-mile walk across Liverpool, the boys were seen by 38 people, but most people didn't intervene. Two people who challenged Thompson and Venables were told that Bulger was their younger brother and that he was lost and that they were all lost and that they were taking him to the local police station. Eventually, the boys arrived in the village of Walton and with Walton Lane Police Station across the road facing them, they hesitated and led Bulger up a steep bank to a railway line near the disused Walton and Anfield Railway Station, close to Anfield Cemetery, where they began to torture him. The list of torture is absolutely horrific, so I don't go into any detail at all, because I don't really... The fact that it's a two-year-old... Yeah, the fact that it's a two-year-old and the fact that it was knowingly done by children, uh, it's not something that that should be, like, glorified or validated in any way, because it's absolutely both terrifying and barbaric yeah. it just doesn't bear thinking about i, I remember so, studying this in school when we did religious moral and phys- philosophical studies yes, this was one I of the things that, that we talked about <laughs> did you yeah um this was something we spoke about it was second year of high school i think or mm-hmm. third year and um it's always really stuck with me that it's it's just so horrific uh, Alan Williams, who was the case's pathologist, stated that Bulger suffered so many injuries, 42 in total, that none could be isolated as the fatal blow. One notable thing that is uh, that they found was that he had batteries in his mouth. And there are talks that there were some in his bottom as well, but they weren't there uh, in the... the um, what was that I read? Police said that there weren't, there wasn't evidence of that when they arrived mm-hmm. okay so i don't know it may Bizarre. just be rumors yeah um or it may be fact and it's just maybe not spoken about all that much but yeah. they were definitely in his mouth thompson and venables laid bulger across the railway tracks and weighed down his head with rubble in the hope that a train would hit him and make his death appear to be an accident after they left the scene the body was indeed cut in half by a train Bulger's severed body was discovered two days later on the 14th of February, which is two days from now. So the death happened uh, 28 years ago today. Yeah. yeah. At, okay. at the, the point of this episode going out. Yeah. So that's why I decided to talk about this. I was planning on just doing Chucky and just doing Robert, mm-hmm. but this came into my head and it just so happens to be the anniversary mm-hmm. today. 
Uh, police suspected that there was a sexual element to the crime since Bulger's shoes, socks, trousers and pants had been removed. But they don't talk about that a heck of a lot. But if you look, if you do read into it, there is talk of that mm-hmm. being um, there being a sexual element. The railway embankment upon which his body had been discovered was adorned with hundreds of bunches of flowers. A breakthrough came when a woman, on seeing slightly enhanced images of the two boys on national television, recognised Venables, whom she knew had been skipping school that day with Thompson. So she contacted the police and the boys were arrested. The fact that the suspects were so young came as a shock to investigating officers, but both had blood on their shoes. The blood, of Tom- the blood on Thompson's shoes was matched to Bulger's through DNA tests. A pattern of bruising on Bulger's right cheek matched the features of the upper part of a shoe worn by Thompson. A paint mark on the toe cap of one of Venable's shoes indicated he must have used some force when kicking Bulger. Thompson is said to have asked police whether the two-year-old had been taken to hospital to, quote, get him alive again. The boys were charged with murder uh, on the 20th of February 1993. In the trial, they were tried as adults. The boys denied the charges of murder, abduction and and attempted abduction. The attempted abduction charge related to an incident at the New Strand Shopping Centre earlier on the 12th of February 1993, which was the day of Bulger's death. Thompson and Venables had attempted to lead away a different two-year-old, but had been prevented by the boy's mum, which I didn't know. I don't think I knew that either. Yeah, I didn't know that. Oh. The boys by this point were 11 years old and they were found guilty of Bulger's murder at the Preston Court on the 24th of November 1993, becoming the youngest convicted murderers of the 20th century. Sanctuary, I always do that. Sanctuary. The judge, Mr Justice Morland, told Thompson and Venables that they had committed a crime of unparalleled evil and barbary. Nope, barbarity. Morland sentenced them to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure with a recommendation that they should be kept in custody for a very, very many years to come. Recommending a minimum of eight years, the judge lifted reporting restrictions and allowed the names of the killers to be released saying, I did this because the public interest overrode the interest of the defendants. There was a need for an informed public debate on crimes committed by younger children. Just to clarify what I just said, the judge decided that anonymity was not an option for these two. Yep. And so the the reporters were allowed to, to name and shame, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons we studied it in our MPS was because we talked about what do you do in a situation like this where the people committing a crime are children. Anyway, very complicated. It'd be so easy to go into big debates about it, but... Mm-hmm. In the follow-up investigation, it was revealed that one of the video cassettes recently rented by one of the murderer's parents was the third Child's Play film. While it has never been confirmed that either of the murderers actually watched the film, there are some unsettling similarities between Chucky's demise in the film including being splattered by paint and eventually getting mulched by a grisly roller coaster mishap, and the grim details of Bulger's homicide. A ferocious media campaign in the wake of the crime eventually led to a clampdown on VHS, VHS sales in the UK. So oh. they think, potentially, based on some similarities, that the kids had seen the film Child's Play slash Chucky mm-hmm. number three and it was that that had inspired them to kidnap a child 
And there was also talk of the thing is we talked about this in school and then I couldn't find it when I was looking when I was researching. Yeah. They think that they were putting batteries in his mouth and things because they thought it could bring him back to life. Because they thought oh he was a doll. God. There was there was all sorts of things like that we spoke about. But um that's all that I went into in terms of detail for the story. I do yeah. recommend people go and read it. Wikipedia is very thorough and mm-hmm. goes into much, much more detail. The trial was very complicated, very long, and there's been subsequent things happening where they were released and they had uh, kind of... New identities. New identities, that's the word. They had new identities, so people don't know what their yeah. names are. Pe- people have been arrested because they've pretended... They've outed a person as a joke, mm-hmm. as being one of these two boys. Yeah. Um, and then they themselves have been arrested. They've, those kinds of pranks have been happening. Yeah. The most recent thing is that one of them has been rearrested for being in possession of child pornography. Yeah. That's yeah. a recent development. Um, but there is lots to read about this. But the thing that I found most interesting and relevant to my story was the fact that the film Chucky yeah. may have actually yeah. had an influence. The blue paint thing... They had they had stolen blue paint from the shop, the shopping centre, mm-hmm. and they poured blue paint on James. Yeah. So that's where they're like, haha, Chucky gets splattered by paint and then yeah. gets cut up by a roller coaster. Yeah. And then the fact that that happened to James Bolger is what made them think that there's probably there a link. Be, yeah. yeah, something between it. It's what do you know do you know what? Even though it's like twenty eight years since it happened, it's still one of those cases here in the UK that feels very raw yeah and I and I think one that still disturbs people and like see thinking about it we've had lots of notorious cases like sort of 20th century cases and a lot of them are like so far down the line now or there's so few living relatives left or whatever that a lot of them have now been like dramatized yeah. Such as the Moors murders and the Treading Rose West murders, um, mm-hmm. which have all had sort of dramatic adaptations now. But this case, I remember something came out. I can't remember when it was. I can't remember. It was like a short film based. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? On the interviews yeah. that the boys gave. And I remember there was like a debate on the news or some program about whether it should be released or not because it's still people are still so disturbed by this case and it, it was the debate was basically we shouldn't release that because it's just because just because the crime was so horrific that even yeah. to this day people are still like we can't turn this into fiction and i think if you are, if you do read about the case and you are looking for something that's similar, there was a BBC series called The Victim. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw it. Which that had Joanne in it, didn't it? It did have Joanne in it, yeah. our colleague Joanne. Um, that's kind that it doesn't. It uses that case, not like an exact copy or anything, but it takes. I think it takes its premise from mm-hmm. it takes inspiration from that case and i think it's the closest the dramatization that you have to that to that case because 
the James Bulger case is just horrific. And it's the fact that it was children just makes it all the more horrendous. It's just so sinister to think that children yeah. are capable of that because 42, was it 42 wounds for, on such a tiny little body? It's just... It's kids having that awareness. Yeah. That they know what they're doing is wrong. Well, there's a combination of... Well, there, was, there was studies done with them where they were analysed by child psychologists. Mm-hmm. And I think they did conclude that they did know the difference between wrong and right. Mm-hmm. And there was also something... They both came from quite troubled families, I believe. This is me recalling from high school. The, they both were in families that were quite... I don't know if they were abusive mm-hmm. or if they were just very troubled families. And so then you had to ask the question, is their environment to blame for for doing this? Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, th- I feel like sometimes there are just evil people and it's just that this evil manifested itself within two children. Exactly. It's that whole nature versus nurture debate. Are people yeah. inherently born evil or is it a learned behaviour? I can only hope that the Bulger family have found some sort of closure and some sort of peace because I just don't know how you'd ever recover from that. It's just awful. I do know that the parents didn't stay together Mm-hmm. But they have gone on to have families with other partners. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the tiniest little bit of solace is that they're able to go on and continue to have yeah. a family. They would never, obviously never get over something like no, this. No, of course but not. They've, it's not stopped them from being able to try and have some kind of normal life. Yeah. Um, but going back to the point you made about the short film, I'm sure that the... There was a film that ended up getting nominated for an Oscar. I think it might have been that short film you're talking about. It might and have been. James's mum. There was a bit of an outcry from her because yeah. she hadn't been asked permission for this for her son's story to be used in any way. Yeah, maybe that's why it was in the news. That might have been why. Yeah, and so this this person was getting recognition for something that she was like, "You shouldn't be using." Yeah, this story without the permission of the per- of the people who have been left behind, yeah. suffering with it, and yeah, that's it would be horrible. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I agree because it's yeah, it, it, it's it's just it's just a, I think it's just a case that gets under people's skin, and really, I think it's one that always br- does bring up like a sort of. Moral is that the right word? Moral debate about children and sort of like the psyche of children and that children can commit evils. Do you have anything light for us? (laughs) (laughs) Just let's just go back to the fun little haunted doll, Robert. The haunted doll. I mean, I like. I really enjoy the fact that. The haunted doll gets fan mail. That's really sweet. I mean, I don't even get fan mail. Yet. Which, to be honest, is a is an outrage. It is an outrage. Um, <laughs> but I feel like haunted, haunted dolls is something that creeps up as a trend in sort of horror every so often. And of course, you've got obviously like the Conjuring films, which uses a doll extensively in a lot of its films. Annabelle. Yeah. And then there was also The Boy 
as well. Yes, the first one was quite good. The first one, the second one was atrocious, but the first one was, I really enjoyed the first one. Yeah. Because... Yeah, the second one was truly appalling. The second one was truly appalling. I agree with that. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> but I think because the second one... The, hmm, I, I highly recommend the first one because it's very twisty and turny, and I think it turns the concept of the haunted doll on its head a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, without giving anything away. And for a change, it's quite well acted as well. It's very well acted. Um, a lot of horror films are not. Yeah, yeah that's fair. Uh, and that is a very good one, but it is very much something that crops up. But I, I get, it comes all it comes back to all that idea of making, and I think that's what the X Files did so well. It made like everyday things really sinister. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I recommend looking up the episode of X Files called Chinga. It's mm-hmm. it really stuck with me. I remember there's a bit on a boat. There's a bit where someone's frying some chips up and then they look on the floor and there's someone dead there and they've been killed by oh. a doll. The doll gets put in the microwave. It really is a journey. And I saw that when I was about six and those moments of that programme have stuck with me. Traumatised. Oh, dear. Um, but yeah, I think... Yeah, the X-Files was very good at that, getting under. I, 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 I will admit... Loved the X-Files when I was younger, but I did fall away from it when it started to get sort of very heavy on the alien aspect of it. You know my feelings. Yeah, exactly. We know your feelings. So I I much preferred it when it was um, very much kind of more so like unexplained events rather than it being like an outright... Alien. It's it's aliens. um, Because Because aliens are a cop-out. Aliens are a yeah. cop out in explaining something. Exactly. And I think what made the first few seasons of the X Files so creepy is that a lot of the perpetrators were of human origin, mm-hmm. which made it more all the more scarier because mm-hmm. it was it, it was people I specifically remember there was a see oh my god, I can't even remember which season, but it's uh there was an episode done about an a sort of inbred family that was deemed so terrifying that for a time, I can't remember what channel that used to broadcast it, I think it was maybe Fox, um, didn't rerun it any time okay. they were doing a run of the series because it was considered so, so scary. People were utterly terrified by it. It's also a very good episode, very scary episode, but I can't okay. remember what it's called. But yeah, I was going to say this is something slightly lighter. It isn't, it isn't. Okay. I do have a se- I do have a semi funny story for you in this one. So I've got some uh, Glasgow history for you this week again. Fabulous. Which has inadvertently become my niche. Um, so this week I'm going to give you the hidden history of Glasgow Green. Ooh, cool. Ooh. Um, I'm not going to lie. This is a slight cop out because I'm basing it off the Fun Fact Friday that went up on the Instagram last week. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> which as I was researching, I was like, hmm, I might just do this one. Um, so, Glasgow Green is an expansive public park towards the east end of the city centre, measuring at approximately 136 acres. Huge. 
Huge. In 1450, King James II granted the land to Bishop William Turnbull and the people of Glasgow, permitting it to be used as public land. Originally, the green was uneven and swampy, and instead of being one complete vast area, it was actually comprised of several different greens that were all divided by burns. Oh. Burns as in, like, the water, not as in, like, Robert Burns, you know. Oh, I see. (laughs) (laughs) Scorch marks. (laughs) Um, The area was used predominantly as a place for industry, and it was a place people could wash and bleach their linen, use it as a place to dry their fishing nets, and even go swimming. Would not recommend. No. Wouldn't recommend swimming in the Clyde. Mm, no. No. Pollution. Pollution, though. Um, it was also used as a grazing ground for herds of farm an- animals. Oh, that would be nice. Bring that back. So, bring that back. So, would you like to know a fun fact about Glasgow Green? Of course. Of course. So, did you know that those awarded the Freedom of the City, which recipients have included Sir Alex Ferguson, Sir Billy Connolly, and even Nelson Mandela? Yeah, which is why we have Nelson Mandela Place in the city centre. And those that receive the freedom of the city are technically still permitted to allow their herds to graze on the green, should they so wish. Lovely. Why don't they? (laughs) Billy, where's your herds? Exactly. So if anyone that has received the freedom of the city knocks up with a couple of cows and a sheep, they're technically allowed to let them stand away in the middle of Glasgow Green. Love it. Because why not? Why not? Um, the city's first steamy opened at the Green in 1732, named the Wash House. Pretty much does what it says in the tin. Okay. For those of you that are not <laughs> Scottish, um, the word steamy is the Glasgow colloquial term given to the old public wash houses, which were used as a washing and drying facility for people's clothes. And it's also the title of a play that I think is terrible. It is also the title of a play. Um, yeah, I have some feelings on that play. Do you know why I have a, cu- cu- a couple of reasons why? That um, a few girls in my higher drama class had to do passages from it for their acting exam. And for anyone that knows the play, they had to do the scene about the mince. To anyone who hasn't seen it or read it, you won't have a clue what that means. Those in the know will. Uh, and it took, it, God love them, it took them forever to try and nail it. And for 95% of the time I was prompting for it and it got to the point I was like, oh my God, please just say it right. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't fun. Um, so city bylaws state that it is apparently still legal for citizens of Glasgow to hang their washing on the green. Oh. That law has never gone away. That's good to know. Yeah, so remnants of the old drying field actually still remain at the top end of the green, which is towards the formal Templeton carpet factory. Um, If anyone has ever been near Glasgow Green and don't know what I'm talking about, it's the sort of building inspired by Indian architecture up in the back corner that's now houses and offices. It used to be a carpet factory. Um, Also, did you know... That there is a tale that 18th century Scottish inventor and engineer James Watt was wandering across the green one day and during his plaintive walk 
came up with the idea for what would become the separate condenser for the steam engine. Oh. I'll be honest, I don't know what that means. It sounds very impressive. It sounds very impressive, but to make it even more impressive, uh, many actually herald this invention as the kickstarter for the subsequent industrial revolution. Well, we started it all, didn't we? We did. I mean, I'm not going to lie. There was a lot of Scottish inventors that definitely kickstarted that thing. <laughs> yeah, we, we've we invented and loads. Do, and do we get any of the glory for it, Chris? Of course not. We do not. Of course we don't. But it's our, it's our fault that all those mills went up. Um, so Glasgow Green is now a popular park housing various memorials and remnants of architecture and is home to the People's Palace Museum and Winter Gardens. Love the People's Palace. It's great. Uh, highly recommend when it reopens, if ever. Uh, it is now a popular site for gigs and concerts and most recently has been the site of the Transmit Music Festival. Yeah. I was there at Transmit in 2018 to see Queen and Adam Lambert play. And let me tell you, Chris McLeish, every single person in that field, their um, gender aside, was 100% in love with Adam Lambert. It's not hard. He is so talented and so charismatic. Charismatic. (laughs) Charismatic. Charismatic. (laughs) That... Oh my God, that human just exudes it from every pore of his body. And I'd never, so I never, I, I knew of him, but didn't really know much about him. But I think I just spent most of my time going, oh my God, please his, love me. <laughs> you should check out some of his own music because he's actually, his album, I want to say it was called Trespass, Trespassing. Mm-hmm. That album is very, very good. Um, but- He's got a few yeah. crackers. Yeah, he, what 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 a guy. Um, but as people wander across the grass or stand cheering for a band, do they know of the dark events that once took place on which they stood, or those famous historical figures that once stood where they are now? Because Glasgow Green holds many a secret. Love it. Love it. Good. Um, so, Glasgow Green has actually played host to many gatherings throughout history, and it has often been used as a place for political meetings and protests. And this is still to an extent in the 21st century, too. The, I think the most recent thing that we had was the uh, socially distant, would like to point that out, uh, socially distant uh, Black Lives Matter protest yeah. at the Green last year. Lovely. Um, So it is very much still used as a place of, like, political activism. Uh, Groups that gathered there actually included the suffragettes in the early 20th century. We love a suffragette. We love a suffragette. Um, Although, a somewhat unexpected visitor made his way to the Green in the mid-18th century. Chris McLeish, a wee bit gothic listeners, please welcome our special guest star... Making an appearance for the third week running. Drum roll, please. <laughs> it's the young pretender himself, Bonnie Prince Charlie. Applause all round. Love it. 
Yeah, so this is the story of that one time Bonnie Prince Charlie thought it would be a good idea to visit Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> Out of all so, the places he could go. Of, of all the places he thought Glasgow would be the right one. <laughs> so, as told back in episode 13, in the winter of 1745, the Jacobite army are forced to retreat from the north of England, landing in Glasgow on Christmas Day of that same year. So, upon entry to the city, Charles, wanting to magnify the appearance of his army, marched his men through the front gate of Shawfield Mansion, which is where he was setting up his headquarters, and out by the back garden. So they went in one gate and out the other. Got they you. retired to Back Cow Lone, which is now known as Ingram Street in the city centre. Mm. And then they appeared again as though having newly arrived via Queen Street and the Tron Gate. Okay. So, <laughs> this manoeuvre was watched by the Glasgow citizens, the observance of which, who in recognising the botanical badges and the tartans of the various clans, noted that it was an odd coincidence that they kept seeing the same thing and people over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Bonnie Prince Charlie was making these men walk in a circle to make it appear like he had more men with them than oh, what God. he did. <laughs> poor, poor, and poor, poor Charlie. Poor Charlie. And if there's one thing I'll say about the Glaswegians is that we are not afraid to mock if we think you're being a bit of an idiot. Yeah. So that is exactly what they did. They were slightly openly mocked as the illusion did not perhaps go as successfully as Charlie wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was making his men walk in a circle and made them look very stupid in the process. <laughs> so Glasgow, doing rather well for itself, had firmly opposed the Jacobite uprising and the prince's cause as the city's industries were flourishing. The Jacobite army camped on the green, whilst the prince enjoyed hospitality at Shawfield Mansion, which was the home of tobacco merchant John Glassford. I'm not going to go into John Glassford, because as much as he brought lots of money in the city, he was also a prolific slave trader. And mm -hmm. that's that's the topic for a later date, because I have lots of feelings yes, of course. On, on the way we remember John yes. Glassford. Exactly, and how he should actually be remembered. Anyway, the prince, although admired by certain people in the city, was not successful in trying to convince others to support his cause. He reportedly marking upon feeling, quote, so without friends whilst in residence. Because everybody was like, we don't think, we, we don't agree with what you're doing, mate. Yeah, Fair enough, absolutely. <laughs> The town council had denied Charles's request for funding. He reportedly requesting a sum of £15,000 for his cause, which is approximately £1.7 in today's money. A lot of monies. That's a lot of monies. Um, a lot of monies. Provost Buchanan stated that supporting the Jacobite cause would not be justified as the citizens of the city did not support Charles in his claim to the throne. Buchanan also stated that as public opinion of Charles and his claim were not held high and any reported donation to the cause might cause public outrage, the provost claimed that he was far more scared of the Glasgow people than of the mainly Highlander army that camped in Glasgow Green. 
So basically, in short, he was more scared of the people of Glasgow knocking on his door than the Jacobite army. <laughs> Which, to be fair, it's not a bad <laughs> assessment. Got, it's not a bad assessment. As a, as a Glaswegian myself, albeit one with a slightly affected accent, thank you very much, Glasgow University, for that little affliction. The, <laughs> one, <laughs> the one thing I will say is that we... I like to think of us as a very welcoming peoples. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully you would have experienced that when you first arrived in Glasgow. Yeah. We're a very welcoming peoples, but also you don't, you don't cross a Glaswegian, basically. No. Do so at your peril. Absolutely. Um, so Charles did not exactly endear himself to the Glaswegian populace upon his arrival in the city demanding to the city magistrates that his army should be given 12,000 shirts, 6,000 cloth coats, 6,000 pairs of stockings and 6,000 waistcoats. The citizens were compelled to pay for these items, the total of all the items up to the sum of over £10,000 in 1745 money. Yeah. And this was done under the threat of military execution. Good God. So he's been a wee bit demanding. Um, news came, however, of Glasgow citizens subscribing and donating to a fund that was raising money for troops against the prince. <laughs> Enraged, Bonnie Prince Charlie demanded a list of names of those that supported the opposition fund and even threatened to have Buchanan hanged if he did not give him a list of names. The provost didn't relent, however, stating that he would give no names except his own and that he himself had subscribed as he thought he was discharging a duty and was not afraid to die in such a cause. So, <laughs> upon being told that uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie is going to execute you if you don't tell us who these people are, Buchanan, effect uh, Buchanan effect effectively just went, is he I? Is, uh, is that what he's going to do? Oh, I Aye. Come ahead. <laughs> but then he's also got all his slaves who's going to take care of business for him, probably. Th that's true. Um, before their flight from the city, the Jacobite army actually took hostages. Oh. Yeah. A certain Mr. Archibald Quotes and Mr. Bailey George Carmichael, as the army had not yet received the entirety of their clothes order, Charlie also took a printing press, a type, and three printers. <laughs> All right. What are you going to do with that? It's such a bizarre story. It's so weird. <laughs> um, many of the army commanders were enraged with the reception they received in Glasgow and became determined that they would sack and burn the city and put residents to the sword, i.e. they were going to kill them. Mm -hmm. Which is a completely rational thing to do absolutely it was it was cameron of lochiel however also known as the gentle lochiel who forced the commanders to think about their intended actions his interventions would eventually spare the city in return for his kindness the town magistrates decreed that every time lochiel or his descendants entered the city bells would be rung in his honor oh yeah cute yeah, so that was that one time that Bonnie Prince Charlie decided to pitch up to Glasgow and um, it didn't go very well for what him. What a time he had. What a, what a time. TripAdvisor uh, be burning up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, it was definitely, it was def I mean, from Bonnie Prince Charlie's 
sort of perspective, he was definitely like zero out of ten would not recommend. Okay. Okay. In terms of the reception he got in Glasgow, because the Glaswegians were just like, eh, no, just go. Can you leave, please? We we don't really want anything to do with you. Fair. Um. So I yeah, I thought that was a nice little sort of light-hearted story. Yeah. Before I get to the slightly darker ones. Great. So. It was during the 19th century, however, did Glasgow Green become most famous as the place crowds descended upon to watch public executions. Woo, 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 woo! <laughs> I'm sure that's what they were doing as well. Yeah. <laughs> it is believed that 71 people, 67 men and 4 women were executed in Jocelyn Court, an area of Glasgow Green in front of the High Court building, which I believe now does have a plaque on the ground in the on the position the scaffold was. Okay. Can't remember where on the where in the green. If you're going for a walk there, have a look for it. I think it's near the McLennan Arch. The patch of ground on which executions took place gave way to the phrase "You'll defacing face in the monument," referencing Nelson's monument at the centre of the green. Uh, do check out last week's Fun Fact Friday on the social medias for some further information on that one. Yeah. If you're if you're looking looking into it. Um, notable people executed on Glasgow Green include a certain Dr. Edward William Pritchard, <gasps> who I think we might have met on this podcast before. He's an old friend of ours. I think I, I believe he might have made an appearance at some point. Absolutely. Um, what a guy. Yeah, he definitely did. Uh, check out episode four for Chris's full story on his case and execution. It's a very interesting one. The crocodile. Um, the crocodile. Um, it is believed that the numbers gathered to watch his execution were in the range of 80,000 and 100,000. And he also holds the title of the last person to be publicly executed in Scotland. Which is quite a claim to have. Yeah. As yeah. if... Being called the human crocodile wasn't enough. He just wanted it all. He wanted it all. All the accolades. All. <laughs> <laughs> um, convictions of those condemned to death uh, included counts of murder, rape, theft and assault. Although minor offences, including forgery and even the stealing of sheep, could deal you the same fate as those guilty of more heinous crimes. So here's a couple of stories of executions, perhaps not as famous within the city's folklore. Okay. So the first one is the case of McFarlane and Blackwood. Okay. So Hans McFarlane, Helen Blackwood and Anne Marshall were all convicted of the murder of Alexander Boyd, a ship's carpenter with the Merchant Navy. Blackwood and Marshall worked as prostitutes and shared a room with McFarlane, with McFarlane who was Helen's boyfriend. Okay. A they also shared with a fellow prostitute, Mary Hamilton, and two orphaned, destitute brothers, William and James Schillinglaw. So, so there was five, one, two, four, six, all living in one room, which I suppose was not uncommon for the time. I was going to say that's luxury because there's fewer than ten <laughs> of them. Exactly. So on the 11th of June, 1853, Boyd was brought back to the house and whilst there with the quartet, was plied with alcohol and eventually given a drink believed by some to have been laced with snuff. Becoming increasingly erratic under the effects of the laced drink, Boyd aimed a punch at Helen, who, in retaliation, hit him over the head with a chamber pot. Hopefully it wasn't full. 
oh, I mean, fingers crossed. Either way, it did the trick. Well, that'll do. <laughs> Once on the floor, Aunt and Helen stripped the man down to his underwear and socks, and it is believed they were searching for money or any other valuables they could steal. They then threw him out the window, which was three stories high. Peachy mama. Yeah. Calling down to the street below, they attempted to make it look like an accident, that he'd been under the influence of alcohol and tragically fell to his death. The broken chamber pot was duly disposed of and the four appeared to have got away with their crime. And they would have done. Mm -hmm. Except there were certain witnesses they hadn't thought of. The Schilling Law brothers, tucked away underneath a bed, which was their usual place to sleep at night, had not been asleep during the entire ordeal as those in the room so believed. The brothers had, in fact, seen everything. Oh, no. Yeah. The four fled, but were ultimately apprehended. The brothers were taken to a police station where they gave an account of what they'd witnessed. Boyd's cause of death was determined to be in line with injuries sustained from the fall. So it was the fall that killed him, not, not the, the chamber. chamber pot over the head. Okay. Once the case went to trial, Mary was delivered the verdict of not proven, which is a verdict specific to the justice system in Scotland, effectively meaning that there was not enough evidence presented by the prosecution to conclusively prove that she was involved with the crime. Anne was found guilty, but on an account of reprieve, had her sentence altered to that of transportation. Now, she might have escaped the gallows, but transportation wasn't any worse, like lesser a sentence because she okay. was going to have a horrendous time right uh, yeah uh, they were effectively going to transport her to work her to death was what transportation was for Hans McFarlane and Helen Blackwood however their date of execution on Glasgow Green was set Hans had applied to marry Helen whilst in prison but was denied a chaplain also encouraged the duo to confess but was not able to gain one from either of them Whilst both on the scaffold, Hans proposed to Helen. The timing's not great. <laughs> the timing's not great. He said, Helen Blackwood, before God and in the presence of these witnesses, I take you to be my wife. Do you consent? She said she did, and so he continued. Then before these witnesses, I declare you to be what you have always been to me a true and faithful life, and you die an honest woman. The chaplain added an amen, and under Scottish law, under Scottish law at that time, the couple were now legally married. Well, that's simple. It's very simple. It was as simple as that. <laughs> um, mere moments later, however, did William Colcraft release the trap. Well, there's probably, there's, <laughs> there's probably one of the shorter marriages ever known. Yeah. Uh, oh my it's the fact that they were standing there on like on the scaffold in front of a crowd exchanging wedding vows they're it, it, it's just awful it's just horrible i can imagine the crowd going oh oh ah <laughs> like such a such a rush of very confused and conflicting emotions yeah it definitely would have been a whirlwind yeah at that one Despite the motive for the crime often being presumed to be robbery, it has also been cited as one of the most senseless of Scottish crimes, as it was highly unlikely it was ever going to go unpunished. Effectively, 
people don't really know why they did it and they were going to get caught so uh, uh, the, 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 the psychology behind it still confuses still confuses people mm-hmm. do you want to know what i find most creepy about this case though yes 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 their date their date of marriage and execution was the 11th of august 1853 the 11th of august is my birthday it's my birthday that's exciting (laughs) not exciting at all i was like this is such an interesting case and they were married on the scaffold and that's just really macabre and then we're like date of death 11th of august i was like oh i don't like it (laughs) (laughs) so you have the opposite reaction to when my birthday comes up (laughs) exactly oh god (laughs) this is another um execution on glasgow green that we i didn't really know about so this is to do with the radical rising the radical Okay. okay i'm going to be saying the word radical a lot in this story But when I say radical, I don't mean it as in someone that has been radicalised. It's what this group of people literally called themselves. So when I say radical, I mean radical with a capital R. Okay, okay, okay. Just just so we know. Just, yeah. So, the Radical War, also known as the Scottish Insurrection of 1820, was a week of strikes and unrest in Scotland. Economic downturn after the Napoleonic Wars and continued but unanswered calls for government reform were all factors in the unrest. I'm really, really sorry. This is going to be quite political chat until I get to... <laughs> That's okay. I can deal. I can deal. I, I, do, I do have a point to make at the end, though, and you will get your payoff with the gothicness at the end of the Excellent. story, I promise. I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, dis- disillusioned weavers and skilled artisans within Glasgow all went on strike previously in 1813, but ultimately returned to work. It wasn't until the post-Waterloo recession in 1816 that hit the city was there a further fueling of the flames and demanding reform. I also can't say Waterloo without singing in my head. (laughs) I actually had managed to, I managed to control myself quite well there. Well done. You did really well. Thank you. But then you gave me permission by saying that you had it in your head. That's okay. You were merely vocalising what was internally banging away at my skull. Yeah. Thanks. No problem. <laughs> so, a covert group had been formed in the light of these increasing demands, named the Committee for Organising a Provisional Government, which constituted a group of committed radicals, capital R, elected by their respective unions. Should a successful rising occur, then these individuals would be responsible for the organising of a new social structure. Government forces, however, were keen to catch the leaders. On the 21st of March, 1820, the committee met at Marshall's Tavern at Glasgow's Gallagate. One of the individuals in attendance was John King, who was a weaver. It is now believed that he was actually a planted government spy. Ooh. Ooh. It's all very espionage this, like this, this story. Another meeting was planned for the very next day, this time including inv- individuals John Craig, Duncan Turner and Robert Lees. All industrial workers, all suspected spies. Mm. Mm. On the 1st of April, Glasgow citizens awoke to find a proclamation posted all around the city. The committee were encouraging them to rise up and, quote, recover their rights. 
This was done with the intent to incite revolt. It had been a plan of the government to smoke out those that were at the forefront of the radical movement. So, government forces were effectively attempting to cause radical leaders to rise up in the so they would effectively inadvertently identify themselves, yeah. leading to easy arrest. Makes sense. So instead of the government having to go and look for them, if they, if these spies pretended to be in support of them and incite something, then they would come out and then they could be easily taken in. Yeah. It's not a bad a plan. By the na- <laughs> it's not a bad plan. A man by the name of James Wilson, also known as Pearly Wilson, a prominent figure within the radical movement, responded just as the government had intended. He marched a group of radicals peacefully, and I want to stress peacefully, because the word radical means something very, very different <laughs> nowadays okay. as to what it did by then, because reading about it, this group of gentlemen were incredibly intelligent and well-read men. They, right. they were they were effectively fighting for equal rights right. and would often discuss topics such as the abolition of slavery. And they were very much sort of like forward thinking. They just called themselves radicals. The radicals, which is now not a very good word in this day and age. Um, so yeah, they marched from Strathaven in the direction of Glasgow. Word had reached them that a group of sympathetic French troops were waiting to meet them and were wishing to assist them in their fight. Wilson sent a man on ahead to discover just whether these rumours were true. Despite no appearance of the alleged troops, they continued on. But once they reached Glasgow, they realised that there was no mass insurrection at all. Dejected, they returned to Strathaven. Little did they know that there was a government ploy at play and Wilson had inadvertently identified himself as a radical. That night, government soldiers made their way to the participants' houses and arrested them. So Wilson was arrested on a charge of high treason. On the 24th of July, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. On the 30th of August, Wilson climbed the scaffold on Glasgow Green, remarking to his executioner, did you ever see such a crowd as this? At five to three, Wilson was hanged and left there for half an hour before being lowered. His punishment was not yet over, however. In line with the punishment for high treason, Wilson was duly decapitated. Yeah, his executioner held his head aloft, saying, this is the head of a traitor. The crowd jeered in response, however. Some reported to have shouted, it is false, he has bled for his country. So, Chris, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. When do you think the death penalty for high treason was abolished? Oh, God. You're asking me this question, which suggests that it was not as long ago as we want it to be. If at all. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm going to vote 60s. Would it surprise you to hear that we were actually alive at the time? Oh, no. <laughs> but when was the last time it was carried out? Surely a long time ago. 
Yes. I think the last time it was carried out was a very long time ago. Yeah. But the death penalty for high treason was not actually scrapped until 1998. Jings, I was seven. Yeah. <laughs> I was <laughs> a primary three. That's grim. Um, yeah, as much as it wasn't carried out, and I don't think high treason... I don't think a lot of people had been arrested on that charge up until that point. It was a reform in um, legislation that actually led to the abolishment of it in 98. Because we hadn't even had capital punishment for a long time up until then. No. But that little loophole was still hidden away in the... By Jove. Yeah, so there, there you go. There's a fun fact for you. But yeah, that is the hidden history of Glasgow Green. Love it. Thanks. I um, I enjoy a walk in Glasgow Green, but perhaps Glasgow Green's delightful. Yeah, but it's perhaps going to be slightly grimmer when I actually think of that. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do find it so fascinating, and this it's the same with the Grass Market in Edinburgh, because that's yeah. where the hangings used to happen there, and mm-hmm. they've got it marked out. And uh, I just find it so fascinating. But yeah. also. The morbid curiosity of the public that actually attended these things really blows yeah. my mind. It, yeah, it is super interesting to think because when I was researching this, I was reading a few articles about like what would happen on the day of an execution and that the fact there would be musicians playing and people would set up stalls and be selling food and drink. It was effectively it was effectively transmit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except where the entertainment happened to be a public execution. God. It was yeah, it's really, really bizarre. But also I think because Glasgow Green is such a sort of place of calm and amongst the sort of madness of the city, I don't think a lot of people know actually should... what went down there they should put up more information about it because that's the kind of thing that i love knowing yeah i will say if anyone listens to this and fancies a walk around glasgow green my sounds so stupid right but my recommendation would be to look at the ground because there's a lot of plaques set into the ground um denoting <laughs> place, um, such as the places of execution uh, there's the, a plaque to where Bonnie Prince Charlie was on Glasgow Green probably being pelted by eggs who knows um, probably somewhere and also do you know that there's a Peter Pan statue in Glasgow Green I, I did but that's the kind of thing I would know <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah yeah um, I didn't actually know that that was a Peter Pan statue until I started researching this. I thought it was just some random kid. Oh, that's Ped- Pedro Pan. Yeah, it is. Um, but yeah, that would be my recommendation is look at the ground at Glasgow Green. That's where you'll find the most information because there's all the plaques are set into the, yeah. into the floor now. So, um, But yeah, it's really strange because Glasgow Green's all... But it, it's so funny that all these years down the line, that Glasgow Green is actually still a place of, like, celebration. Yeah, totally. For gatherings, because there's been multiple gigs there. Um, And, like, the stuff like the Glasgow Half Marathon, 
ends in Glasgow Green, so that's always like a big play, like time of celebration and lo- loads of st- just loads of, loads of stuff happens there. But yeah, it's just regard that in each time period, it's always been a hub of mass activity. Yeah, basically. Regardless of if that's a fundraising marathon or a hanging. <laughs> yep. Yep. That effect that effectively sums it up. Yeah. yeah. It has always been a place of a place of gathering. So so yeah, I and also it's free. Exactly. So if anyone if anyone wants to go and learn a little bit of Glasgow's Gothic history, go down to Glasgow Green and have a wander about because it does doesn't cost you anything. Um and I sincerely hope that the People's Palace does reopen. Yeah. I've never been. Soon. I've never been. You've never been? No. Oh, we'll need to go. We'll need okay. to go. Um, we have quite the list of locations to visit once this is all done. I, we genuinely do. We've got so many days out to plan when that's allowed. <laughs> yeah. I look forward to it. So many days out. Yeah, that's great. Um, I highly recommend. Also, the Winter Garden Cafe does an excellent caramel shortcake. So Noted. We're, sort- we're sorted on the, on the snack front Good. as well. So... So there we go. Let's do yeah. it. It's on the list. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so as always, if you want to see our reference images for our stories today, just pop on over to Instagram. The images will all go up um, on Friday, not long after the episode does. And also keep an eye out for Hannah's new um, posts on a Monday, Wednesday and Friday, where you can get fun facts, link Wednesdays, you can get all sorts of fun business like that. Um, Exactly. And we are now posting our magical hack questions from the previous week. So should you have any answers, please do whack them in the comments. Yes. the Magical Hack Monday posts. Because we are intrigued. We are intrigued. We like to hear what you have to say. Yes. We honestly do. Uh, So please do that. And also, we really do implore you, if you haven't before, to review us or subscribe to us all that kind of stuff because the more people do that the more people will uh, have us pop up as a suggestion for them so supporting us in that way would be phenomenal um but we yeah. shall love you forever forever and ever um, and ever but thank you very much and was that gothic a wee bit